This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Richmond, September 9th, 1800. Dear Sir, there has been great alarm here of late at the prospect of an insurrection of the Negroes in this city and its neighborhood, which was discovered on the day when it was to have taken effect. About 30 are in prison, who are to be tried on Thursday, and others are daily discovered and apprehended in the vicinity of the city. I have no doubt the plan was formed, and of tolerable extensive combination, but hope the danger is past. The trial will commence on Thursday. And it is the opinion of the magistrates who examine those committed that the whole, very few accepted, will be condemned. The trial may lead to further discoveries, of which I will inform you. We have nothing new from abroad. Very sincerely, I am your friend and servant, James Monroe. Over the past two series, we have talked about uprisings of enslaved individuals in Saint-Domingue and Spanish Louisiana. But in this episode, we will discuss a planned uprising in the heart of the United States in 1800 and what ramifications it would have on both the nation as a whole and for those enslaved in America. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Despite its not being as well discussed in the context of American history as it should be, the Haitian Revolution played an important role on developments in the United States in the 1790s, and the fears of American slave owners have been steadily increasing, and possibly not without reason. Though I did not find any references to it while researching for the Washington series, apparently there was a revolt being planned in the Norfolk, Virginia area in 1792, which was uncovered before those involved could make too much progress. The immediate response was swift. As noted by historian Alan Taylor, despite the fact that there was not enough evidence to convict them in a court of law, quote, the magistrates ordered the dozen supposed ringleaders flogged and had three sold to distant Cuba as a warning to others. The magistrates also increased the number and repressive zeal of their slave patrol. That same year, the Virginia General Assembly revised, quote, its many laws respecting the slave population. The actions taken by the assembly are best described by this passage from historian Richard Beeman. Quote, the act of 1792 reflected growing fears on the parts of whites of unrest among the slave population. It placed further restrictions on assemblages of blacks and increased the punishments for such unlawful gatherings. The assembly also took the final step in degrading the black man's status as a human being. In the past, Slaves have been treated either as real or personal property as the situation dictated. But in 1792, the assembly made the Negro personal estate chattel once and for all, thus preventing him from legally owning or possessing private property. Defining the Negro as personal estate could have created problems for Virginians since the slave owner was held liable for any damages or injuries caused by his personal property but ingenious Virginians found a way out of this potential difficulty. The courts differentiated between inanimate and animate chattel. Although a planter might be held responsible for damages done by a falling tree or a runaway wagon, 
he was not held financially responsible for the acts of his slaves, for they were capable of acting on their own volition. Thus, Virginians succeeded in stripping their slaves of all human rights, yet absolved themselves of responsibility for the actions of those slaves. Now, dear listener, I'm going to do something I don't normally do and step outside of the narrative for a moment, as I feel it only right to do so. One of my aims with this podcast was to highlight that presidential history is about more than just the individuals who have served in the office. And thus, that means talking about not just other leaders of the time, but also various populations of people impacted by the action or inaction of each respective presidency. If you're listening to this podcast, then you're likely familiar with American history. So it will come as no surprise that we are going to be talking about slavery and increasingly so as time goes on with this series. This is a subject I've lived with my entire life and have made a point of living with. As someone who grew up in the South, it's hard to avoid the subject, though there are some who try. And as a white Southerner, I feel it a personal responsibility to understand a system perpetrated by my ancestors, which held the ancestors of people who I am very blessed to call friends and family in bondage. I can guarantee that there are going to be times that the inhumanity of slavery will make you cringe or angry or possibly cry. I've done all on numerous occasions over the years while studying slavery. However, it is important to learn about and discuss both as we are still dealing with the ramifications of this barbarism in the present day and as we do ourselves and the future no favors by avoiding the parts of history that make us uncomfortable. Slavery as it was should never exist again, and modern forms of slavery are in our charge to end. Thus, we must continue to discuss the topic in order to hopefully build a future where there are no individuals of any age enslaved. While we cannot and should not avoid the inhumanity, my pledge to you is that you won't be alone in this. I've had so many times when I've read something that has infuriated me or broken my heart, and I was alone in reading it, so I had no one with whom to talk to about it. If you ever hear something on this podcast that you'd like to discuss, we're in this together, and my contact information, as usual, will be at the end of this episode. Please, feel free to reach out. With that said, let's get back to the narrative. Since it will play a role in what is to come in the narrative of this episode, Let's take a moment to get caught up on the situation in Saint-Domingue. When we last left off in episode 2.19, Toussaint Louverture was working to consolidate his power over the entire island of Hispaniola. The offensives that Toussaint's forces would launch against those of his chief adversary, André Rigaud, would be brutal. As noted by historian Laurent Dubois, quote, The fighting descended into a delirium in which neither side showed any mercy. Rigaud kept retreating further into the southern province of Saint-Domingue and called for the support of the region's cultivators. The call would go unanswered, as no more help was coming for Rigaud. Toussaint, meanwhile, would get a boost from an emissary from France who arrived in June 1800 with several proclamations from First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte, including one which confirmed Louverture's status as General-in-Chief of the Army in Saint-Domingue. Finally, Rigaud realized that his cause was hopeless and fled Saint-Domingue in late July with his family, and Toussaint's forces took control of the southern province. Though Louverture had declared a general amnesty for those who had fought with Rigaud, quote, in the wake of the defeat, there were reprisals committed against many prisoners. Some have asserted that Louverture ordered these massacres, but had his generals do the dirty work so that he could deny knowledge of what was being done in his name. With this victory, Toussaint could now turn his full attention and his forces to occupying Santo Domingo, 
the half of the island previously controlled by the Spanish, and forcing out the Spanish administrators who remained in charge. He would accomplish this task by January 1801. Despite the expansion of his geographic area of control, this move would not be the most important Toussaint would take in the year after defeating Rigaud. It would, in fact, be only one in a series of moves taken in opposition to Napoleon's plans to work Saint-Domingue back into the French colonial fold. Though Toussaint appreciated the PR boost that Napoleon's recognition gave him, by the summer of 1800, he was acting with an authority independent from that granted by the French government. Toussaint Louverture was not willing to let the future of Saint-Domingue be decided by those back in Pelly, and his decisions in the next year would be watched very closely by people in the United States, especially in the South. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Besides external factors like the Haitian Revolution, internal developments were changing the shape of slavery in Virginia in particular and in the United States in general. The revolution and independence had produced major shockwaves in Virginia's economy. Whereas it had been primarily focused on tobacco production prior to the war, as planters were unable to export what crops they produced when they weren't destroyed by British forces, plantations began to shift to production of less labor-intensive crops like corn and wheat, which meant that large-scale planters found themselves with a labor surplus in their enslaved population. Though the economy slowly started to rebound, this move to other crops was further boosted by the disruptions in the Atlantic trade network from the war between Britain and France starting in 1793. Historian Douglas Egerton notes that, at the time, quote, slaves, especially healthy young males, still sold for a good price in Virginia and the rest of the South, even if tobacco did not. And planters could have sold their surplus laborers to planters in the fresh lands of the Lower South. Given that the typical Virginia master inherited his black property, as opposed to buying slaves at current prices, any sale outside of Virginia would have netted the often financially strapped planters a substantial profit. Yet many planters avoided this avenue and emancipated some or all of their slaves. Now, I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler and say that this would not always be the case. But the question remains as to why it was at this point in the 1790s. Egerton identifies that some of the Virginia gentry felt a sense of guilt at their participation in slavery. And indeed, we saw this in our series on George Washington as he came to understand that slavery was wrong and wished to remove himself from the enslavement of individuals. Egerton also identifies the role that religious movements of the time played in this. In a movement now dubbed the Great Awakening, but was identified contemporaneously as quote-unquote new light, quote, the evangelical movement had been noisily challenging the religious, and hence the social order. 
Baptists and Methodists especially preached their gospel not only to large crowds in the backcountry, but also in the older, settled Tidewater. The New Light preachers not only reached out to the humble orders, they implied that the simple people were more godly than the smug, ostentatious gentry. In an added challenge to the traditional order, they were going so far as to challenge the system of slavery. The 1790 Baptist General Committee meeting in Virginia approved a resolution that stated as follows, quote, Resolved that slavery is a violent deprivation of the rights of nature and inconsistent with a Republican government, and therefore recommend it to our brethren to make use of every legal measure to extirpate the horrid evil from the land. Now, as I imagine we all know, slavery did not come to an end in the 1790s. So what happened to continue the system? Well, a few things. First, it must be remembered what a socially stratified society Virginia was at the end of the 18th century. As planters began to emancipate those that they and their families had enslaved, the question became what would happen to the newly freed individuals. Some would provide funds for the formerly enslaved to relocate to the north. Others, like Robert Carter, who in one day emancipated 442 individuals, would provide the newly freed with lands from their estates in Virginia to farm and make their own way. However, a growing free black population in Virginia challenged the social strata. The planter class became upset at the mingling of individuals of different races in church and of free blacks being treated as equal to whites. These growing bonds between groups seen as being lower on the social strata threaten the supremacy of the planter class. Again, from Egerton, quote, By the 1790s, subtle class animosity began to surface in the creation of small abolitionist societies, although the tenets of these societies, like the new light critique of planter idleness, were as much anti-gentry as they were anti-slavery. As the decade went on, however, the planter class would use their stronger position to reinforce their place in society. As noted by Richard Beeman, though the western parts of Virginia were growing in population, the eastern tidewater retained political control, and it was the east where the majority of the enslaved population could be found. These, quote, slaveholding counties had a majority in the legislature and were able to pass preferential legislation which did not bode well for those who sought a gradual end slavery. The problem was in trying to fight slavery through legal means, as was advocated by the Baptist Convention's Resolution of 1790. The planters controlled the legal apparatus in Virginia, and as the decade went on, internal and external factors increased their fear of losing their status, their wealth, and possibly their very lives. Indeed, the fears of Virginia slave owners can be reflected in the words of Thomas Jefferson, who wrote on July 14, 1793, while still serving as Secretary of State, about the situation in Saint-Domingue as follows, quote, Never was so deep a tragedy presented to the feelings of man. I become daily more and more convinced that all of the West India islands will remain in the hands of the people of color, and a total expulsion of the whites sooner or later take place. It is high time we should foresee the bloody scenes which our children certainly, and possibly ourselves, south of Potomac, have to wade through and try to avert them. One member of the gentry would put forward a plan in 1796 to bring about an end to slavery. St. George Tucker's A Dissertation on Slavery detailed in over a hundred pages his idea for every black woman born after his plan was adopted to be free 
and her children without regard to gender would also be free. However, the children, upon reaching the age of 21, quote, would voluntarily bind themselves to service for a year before the first day of February annually, or it would be done for them by the overseers of the poor. In order to ensure that the existing social structure was not threatened, freed people of African descent under Tucker's plan would not be allowed to marry whites, vote, or serve in any public office. They would also be restricted in legal ways, as they would be forbidden under Tucker's plan from serving as an attorney or preparing wills. They would also not be able to, quote, obtain any estate in lands or tenements other than a lease not exceeding 21 years. Oh, and just in case the planners were afraid that these freed blacks might seek extra legal means to obtain rights, they also wouldn't be allowed to bear arms. And yes, this separate but equal plan with all of the major moral and practical issues that are likely going through your head, dear listener, was considered a radical progressive plan at the time. It was so radical and progressive that when St. George Tucker put this plan before the Virginia General Assembly in November 1796 for its consideration, it, quote, was ordered to lie on the table, which meant that it would not even be considered by that body. Besides the social ramifications of emancipation, the planter class now had more of an impetus to keep an enslaved workforce in place. Back in episode 1.19, I said that the invention of the cotton gin and its receiving a patent in 1793 would have a major impact on the American slave institution. Now, it's time to learn how. As noted by economic historian Curtis P. Nettles, quote, The South in the 1790s urgently needed a new crop. The limitations of rice, indigo, and sea island cotton in the Carolinas and Georgia were matched by troubles that beset the tobacco planters of the Upper South. Between 1791 and 1796, Virginians suffered from the low price of tobacco. Between 1786 and 1789, they were the victims of short or poor crops caused by drought, storm, or frost. With the cotton gin making the cultivation of cotton a profitable enterprise, as well as expansion into new fertile lands out west that, like the established parts of the South, had a favorable climate for growing the crop, it quickly became apparent that cotton could not only meet the needs of the Southern economy, but also the raw material demands of the English cloth industry, as well as developing domestic industries. However, workers would be needed to work the fields to grow cotton. Thus. In a short amount of time, slaveholding states in the South went from having a surplus of enslaved laborers to having a demand for more enslaved labor. This demand was in part met by some slave owners in the North, who, increasingly not seeing an economic benefit in maintaining slavery in their states, sold their slaves to owners further South who would put the enslaved to work in cotton fields. The Lower South would also import tens of thousands more enslaved Africans. The numbers tell the tale of the growth of both the cotton industry and the slave industry. In 1792, the U.S. as a whole produced nearly 6,300 production bales of raw cotton. By 1800, the nation was up to over 73,000 production bales. Meanwhile, the U.S. Census recorded a jump in the entire slave population in the U.S. from just over 694,000 in 1790 to over 887,000 in 1800, a 28% increase. While states north of Maryland saw mostly decreases in their enslaved population, with New Hampshire leading the pack with a nearly 95% decrease, Virginia saw an 18% jump, 
The Carolinas both saw an increase in the 30s. Georgia's enslaved population doubled. And Kentucky has the dubious honor of being the lead on the increase side with a 225% increase in the population of people enslaved in the state in that 10-year time frame. In the fall of 1799, David Mead, a Virginia planner who had migrated to Kentucky in 1796, wrote that, quote, In truth, the emancipation fume has long evaporated, and not a word is now said about it. As noted by Egerton, quote, Mead, of course, was speaking only of whites. This seems like the perfect time to introduce you, dear listener, to Gabriel Prosser. Gabriel was born in 1776 on Brookfield, a plantation six miles north of Richmond, Virginia, to parents whose names have been lost to history. Egerton cites the name of Gabriel and his two older brothers, all biblical names, as evidence, quote, that their parents had been influenced by the new lights. Gabriel's surname came from his owner, Thomas Prosser, a partner in a Richmond trading firm and, quote, a successful tobacco planner. As the surname was that of the individual who enslaved Gabriel, I will opt to refer to him as Gabriel rather than Prosser as we continue the narrative. As can be imagined, details of Gabriel's early life are not well known, but we can surmise some ideas of what it was like from what we know of other accounts of life from male enslaved children on plantations at the time. It is believed that Gabriel's father was a blacksmith, as both Gabriel and his brother Solomon would take up the craft as they grew older. Gabriel was also taught to read and write, which gave him a higher standing in the community of enslaved persons at Brookfield. The lives of Gabriel and all of those enslaved at the plantation would irrevocably change in the fall of 1798 when Thomas Prosser passed away and his son, Thomas Henry Prosser, inherited Brookfield and those enslaved on it. Egerton describes the younger Prosser as being, quote, even more ambitious than his father. He quickly threw himself into new business ventures, including the purchase of Watson's Tavern on the northern edge of Richmond, and in hiring out the surplus enslaved individuals on the plantation, including Gabriel. For Gabriel, this may have come as somewhat of a relief, as not only did this provide him an opportunity to leave the plantation and go into Richmond, there were rumors that the younger Prosser, quote, behaved with great barbarity to his slaves. However, Gabriel would find himself in a bad situation just around a year later when, in September 1799, he, his brother Solomon, and another enslaved individual named Jupiter were caught by a white man, Absalom Johnson, stealing a pig from his farm. As noted by Egerton, it was a common practice of those enslaved, quote, to supplement their diet with beef and pork. Equally important was the pig as a symbol of a master's authority. Slaves did not regard the raiding of a pen as theft. Taking food from a planter was merely the transference of property, the payment for labor performed. As you can imagine, Johnson and other whites did not see it quite in the same light. Johnson confronted the three enslaved individuals. It's not known what he said, but, quote, his words must have cut deep, for suddenly Gabriel launched himself at the overseer's legs. In the course of the tussle, with Solomon and Jupiter cheering Gabriel on, Gabriel bit off, quote, the better part of Johnson's left ear. Theft was bad enough, but the assault and maiming of a white man was another matter entirely. In Virginia, that was a capital offense. Gabriel and his two compatriots were tried according to the laws of the time, which was in a system separate from the legal system under which whites were prosecuted. A special county tribunal, quote, composed of five justices of the peace, would hear the case and, 
Following their ruling, which had to be unanimous, there was, quote, no appeal except to the governor. Jupiter received 39 lashes on his bare back for his role in stealing the pig. Solomon was acquitted as the only charge against him was brought by Johnson based on a verbal threat that he alleged Solomon had uttered during the exchange. Gabriel was not so lucky, being found guilty of assaulting Johnson. However, as noted by Egerton, he had an option for reprieve that actually was denied to white defendants at the time. A statute had been put in place in 1792 which said that if an enslaved person convicted of a capital offense, quote, could recite a verse from the Bible, rather than being executed, the individual would be, quote, burnt in the left hand by the jailer in open court. Gabriel was able to do this and thus went free after, of course, being branded on his hand. Johnson, however, was not satisfied that justice had been done to him and thus brought Gabriel back to the court in early November, complaining that he felt his life still to be in danger from Gabriel. Thomas Prosser posted as bond for Gabriel's good behavior, quote, a promissory note of $1,000 of his goods and chattels, lands and tenements. Gabriel was put on probation for 12 months, but he was ultimately free to return back to work. Gabriel would continue to be permitted to work in Richmond, and it was during this time after his release that he met Charles Quirsey, an abolitionist originally from France who is believed had come over to the United States as part of the force led by the Comte de Rochambeau during the American Revolution. Quirsey, quote, frequently advised enslaved individuals to rise and kill the white people and said he would help them and show them how to fight. Another person of French origin, Alexander Bedenhurst, would ultimately be involved in the planning that was done between Gabriel and Quirsey. By the spring of 1800, Gabriel brought his brother Solomon and Ben, another person enslaved by Prosser, into the plot. The plan was to have slaves in the city of Richmond and Enrico County start gathering at his, quote, blacksmith shop in the woods or the nearby Brook Bridge. Quercy would organize the group while Gabriel did away with both Thomas Prosser and Absalom Johnson. Then they would lead the force on Richmond to take the governor, James Monroe, as well as seize weapons and establish fortifications. They felt that this would be the spark needed to incite a much larger slave rebellion, and that before long, they would have enough reinforcements to force white authorities to grant serious concessions. With Solomon and Ben on board, the three would then begin to recruit amongst the enslaved population in the area. As described by Egerton, quote, on Saturday evenings and Sundays, a host of activities sanctioned by time and approved by benevolent masters who wished to keep their black servants happy and passive presented the conspirators with ample opportunities to recruit followers. Enrico Blacks traditionally assembled near the Brook Bridge on Sunday afternoons for picnics and religious services. As their numbers expanded, Gabriel and Solomon worked to keep the conspiracy organized. They would, quote, keep list of the names of their contacts, and by the date of the insurrection, there were at least six such lists of names. It was a practice as necessary as it was dangerous. Another dangerous factor was the scope of the planned insurrection. Word was spreading quickly, with some enslaved people having heard about it through the grapevine and approaching the conspirators to volunteer. The conspiracy also expanded beyond the Richmond area to Petersburg, 20 miles to the south. While this word-of-mouth communication was great in terms of recruitment, the more people in on the plans and the further word traveled, 
the greater the possibility became that the conspiracy would be discovered by the authorities. Indeed, though I have not been able to independently confirm or find a copy of the letter, Egerton cites a letter from Governor Monroe to Vice President Jefferson of April 22, 1800, quoted in Herbert Apthaker's American Negro Slave Revolts about rumors, quote, of a Negro insurrection being planned. Again, as I cannot find this letter in the collected papers of Thomas Jefferson available online from the Library of Congress, I cannot confirm any of the details. However, if the governor had already started hearing rumors about the plan in April, it did not bode well for an insurrection being planned to start a few months later in the year. As the spring started moving into summer, word continued to spread throughout the Tidewater. One person involved in the plans worked to recruit those enslaved in Norfolk, while Gabriel and some of his close associates focused their efforts on communities to the north of Richmond. Gabriel also had to work to, quote, procure ammunition and discover where the military stores were deposited in Richmond. However, it wasn't until a large meeting on August 10th that the actual date of the rebellion was decided. And that was only when one enslaved individual at the meeting, quote, demanded to know how soon the uprising would take place. Gabriel settled then on the evening of Saturday, August 30th, as the date the plan would go into motion. As noted by Egerton, quote, Slaves typically worked only half the day on Saturday and then headed for the city. Richmond whites would not think it suspicious to see large numbers of bondsmen moving toward town. While there were still some doubts among those in the crowd, there was also a determination by the leaders to proceed sooner rather than later to see their plans to fruition, and word was sent out through the network. However, it would be this network that would be a part of the plan's undoing. In mid-August, a white postmaster in Petersburg informed Augustine Davis, quote, a prominent printer in Virginia and postmaster of Richmond, that, quote, some whispers have been heard here within a few nights past, indicating some plan of insurrection among the blacks. Davis passed the word along to Richmond Mayor James McClurg, who then informed Governor Monroe, along with ordering the local patrols to be stepped up. Thus, when the 30th arrived, local authorities were already on alert. Then, Nature delivered another blow to the plans. A storm began at just about sunset and, as described by Egerton, quote, walls of water brought travel to a halt. Creeks rose, washing away fragile wooden bridges and cutting off communications between Brookfield and Richmond. Both Quersy coming from Caroline and enslaved individuals from Richmond were unable to reach their rendezvous at the Brook Bridge. Thus, only a handful of people, including Gabriel, arrived at the appointed time and, as travel conditions were only getting worse, they decided to start spreading the word as best as possible in the situation, quote, to meet at the tobacco house of Mr. Prosser the ensuing night. Meanwhile, those involved in the plot in Petersburg and Norfolk waited for word that the spark of rebellion had been lit in Richmond, and the longer it went with no word, the more the cold feet started to take hold. An enslaved 27-year-old on Meadow Farm near Brookfield named Pharaoh would prove to be the first one to break. Pharaoh had been one of the few to arrive at the Brook Bridge and was on hand to hear the plans to delay. Rather than help to spread the word to others in on the plot, he returned to Meadow Farm and spoke to another enslaved person at the plantation who urged Pharaoh to let one of his masters, Mosby Shepherd, know of the plot. They found Mosby in his office and revealed to him that the enslaved population was ready, quote, to rise that night and named Gabriel as the ringleader. Mosby lost no time in spreading the word to slave masters at neighboring plantations, including the local militia captain. However, as with the revolutionists, 
The torrential rain also kept the white planters from doing too much to organize, and the small group that had gathered, after finding nothing thus far amiss, stopped at Pretty's Tavern at dawn to have some rum and take stock. Maybe there was nothing to it. Maybe they had gotten worked up over nothing. As Sunday morning went on, more enslaved people in the Tidewater started to reveal the plot to their masters, and these masters sent word to Richmond. There were also reports that, quote, two white men were concerned in the planning. By noon, word had reached Monroe, who, though he had previously been at his home in Albemarle County further inland, as the General Assembly was not in session, was in fact in Richmond in order, quote, to deal with a yellow fever quarantine in Norfolk. He quickly sent orders to have the military stores secured and appointed three aides to camp to prepare defense. Meanwhile, Gabriel and his allies were attempting to regroup and put together a new game plan when they received word, quote, that the insurrection had blown and that several roving patrols were apprehending blacks along the brook. As the white patrols approached Brookfield, Gabriel and a few other collaborators vanished. While a few involved in the plot wanted to keep it going, most were seeking escape. The more insurrectionists taken in by the white authorities, the more they were able to learn, and they soon learned just how extensive geographically the plot had spread. Though he had initially been skeptical, Governor Monroe was now deeply troubled, and called out the state militia. Indeed, as noted by Egerton, quote, many Virginians, accustomed to living as if a slave uprising were an impossibility, had initially shrugged off the rumors. George Tucker wrote to a cousin on September 1st that, quote, I laughed at the thing till some developments took place which made him rethink his levity. As summer gave way to fall, and as word spread among white populations throughout Virginia and the United States, Gabriel's rebellion would have an impact on the political landscape, though not necessarily the one that Gabriel would have intended. However, we must not assume that Gabriel's rebellion was the first impetus to introducing the issue of slavery into the American body politic. Though not always as well discussed in histories of the time as it should be, it was there and was increasingly coming to the forefront. During the legislative battle over the Virginia Resolution in 1798, Federalists in the Virginia State Legislature had argued that, quote, if the Alien Acts were to be nullified, the door would be unwittingly open to chaos and disorder, as outside revolutionaries would have more freedom to enter the state and foment slave insurrections. One Federalist legislator used the following inflammatory descriptive language in illustrating the consequences of opposition to the Alien and Sedition Acts. Quote, the inexorable and bloodthirsty Negro would be careless of the father's groans, wives and daughters with naked bosoms, outstretched hands and disheveled hair would be ripped away to gratify the brutal passion of a ruthless Negro who would the next moment murder the object of his lust. Sensationalism and fear-mongering are not modern inventions, dear listener, but we shall see more illustrations of them as we move forward in our journey which will proceed on into our next episode, one which I'm calling Enter the Federal City. Until then, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect via social media on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Sources used for this episode can be found at the website, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends.
History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.